You talking to me? Ever since its release in February 1976, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver has been impacting on audiences in different ways. While the jury at that year's Cannes Film Festival awarded her the Palme d'Or, college dropout John Hinckley became so obsessed with winning the affections of its young star Jodie Foster that five years later he followed Travis Bickle's psychotic scheme and tried to assassinate the President of America. Most recently, and far more benignly, Todd Phillips used it as a source for Joker, his contribution to the DC Universe. It's not the only film Taxi Driver has inspired. Well, sir, you are a cowardly son of a bitch. You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. He's going to decorate his saloon with my friend. David Webb Peoples earned a second Oscar nomination for writing Unforgiven. And here he is in 2016 talking at Southern California Arts. I had, I'd seen Taxi Driver, which was the first thing that gave, gave permission to be serious in an entertainment movie, in my view, right? I, I, before that, I didn't want people killed in anything I wrote, because nobody in movies dies real. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. at least I didn't think so. And also that line that Travis says, I want to be a person like other people, mm -hmm. that was a theme for me when I wrote Unforgiven of, of who William Money was, right? He was Travis Bickle old, still trying to be like other people. Mm -hmm. And I thought I, uh, that one of the original scenes I had for it was he was in a position suddenly where he was explaining killing to this kid. And this is what Money himself had finally learned to a certain extent, what you were taking away from someone. Back in 1976, Peoples was embarking on a career in film. Observing how Paul Schrader's script had chronicled Bickle's route into violence, Peoples was stirred to write up his own tale of vigilantism. Only not on the mean streets of contemporary New York, but out in the old and very wild west. 1976 marked the bicentenary of America's independence, and in reflective mood, the country was taking stock of how successfully it was living up to the ideals of the founding fathers. It appeared to some that Hollywood, as if in preparation for the commemoration, began revising the Western, with the likes of Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, Arthur Miller's Little Big Man, Ralph Nelson's Soldier Blue, Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and Don Siegel's The Shootist, each seeking new angles on the past. I'll return to that in a moment, but for now, let us agree that it was from those perspectives that people's script probed what, for him, were the paradoxes that lay at the heart of Hollywood's most enduring genre. Here, speaking in 2011, on the AFI YouTube channel, is Unforgiven's director, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, it's great, the romanticism that Ford brought, and Hawks, and all of them brought, and the, and the wonderful cattle drives uh, in Red River. But I think the, this one uh, was a chance to just put a, my stamp on what I felt about it. In, in reality, like you say, it is a, it is a crock. It, 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 it is a myth, and created uh, by characters who uh, exaggerated the myth of it all. But I also wanted to make a statement that was pertinent to today's society as to the way the romanticism of gunplay and, and of violence. Of all Hollywood genres, the Western is the key to America's mythology. Like any myth, the Western does several things. It explains the world, and giving us a glimpse into an idealized past provides us with an understanding of ourselves. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Released in 1962, John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance admits to how we use mythology to iron out history's complexities. 
It was mythology that divided all acts in the Wild West into either good or evil. And because the Western carved its heroes in the moviegoer's image, they revolted into the realm of infallible purity. A hero only ever committed one act, and it was always honourable. If a sin were to be committed, it was immediately absolved. If the sin endured, the Western redefined it as honourable sacrifice. Gunslingers were called peacemakers, mavericks reluctant heroes, misfits tragic heroes, and vigilantes avenging angels. Thieves, rustlers, outlaws and rebels were venerated as anti-heroes. Jesse James, Johnny Ringo, Kid Curry, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid each became men out of time, victims of history. Such misreading has convinced generations that the Algonquin, Apache, Iroquois, Sioux and other great nations of North America were only civilised with the arrival of European settlers. Which means that the closing of the frontier is just a synonym for the genocide of those indigenous peoples. And in the churches, schools and little houses on the prairies, such mythologies positioned men as the sole custodians of law, order and above all power. Just because we let them smelly fools ride us like horses don't mean we gotta let them brand us like horses. Maybe we ain't nothing but whores, but we, by God, we ain't horses. What People's Script did was explicate the misogyny, psychosis and bigotry that lies at the heart of the mythological West. In Unforgiven, women are bought and sold as cattle. A gunman is hired by the railroad to shoot Chinese people. And the only black character is whipped to death by a sadistic sheriff. I'm going to hurt you. Not gentle like before. But bad. But for all that insight, Peoples couldn't make up his mind what to call his script. Whore's Gold, the Cut Whore Killings, or the William Money Killings. But that indecision didn't deter Francis Ford Coppola from taking an option on the script. Back in the early 80s, Coppola was coming off the hottest streak ever experienced by a Hollywood director. The 1970s having earned him two Palme d'Ors, five Oscars and seven more nominations. But then, for a variety of reasons, not least perhaps because Coppola's self-made studio at Zoetrope collapsed in the wake of his costly flop One From The Heart, his option lapsed on People's Script. But all was not lost for Peoples, because very soon, it wound up at Clint Eastwood's production company, Malpaso. However, the head of development graded it as the worst script she had ever read. Now, before we go any further, the reader was no fool. Sonia Chernus had co-written one of Eastwood's early westerns, The Outlaw Josie Wales. And long before that, she had written Grandma's Money, an episode for Rawhide, the TV show that helped make Eastwood a star. Clearly, Eastwood regarded Chernus very highly, but no one is blessed with constant perfect vision, and Chernus rejected the script on the grounds that it had no redeeming characters, was full of vengeful killings, and ended on a severely grim note. Still, Eastwood read it and was intrigued because he said he couldn't make out which character was supposed to be the hero, and then he understood. You didn't know who was going to be the hero of the picture. First you think it's going to be the sheriff, the part that Gene Hackman played, and that was very uh, uh, tricky, I thought. This, this script sort of leads you in and you think it's going to be a story about uh, his character and then you, uh, and the fact that then you come upon this down and out guy who is living as a widower with um, two kids and, and he's, uh, he's so rusty he can't even get on his horse and he's kind of, uh, he's kind of at a loss of, uh, of where to go in life, has a terrible background that he's trying to hide from. 
And that's, uh, I attribute that to David Peoples' uh, screenplay. So let us return to that widely held belief that the Western underwent revision in the 1960s, a belief that appears to have been prompted by the civil rights movement that marked that noisy decade. However, that belief is somewhat misplaced, because the genre had been critically revising itself for decades. Just look to 1956, when the vicious racism of Ethan Edwards, played by no less an icon than John Wayne in John Ford's The Searchers, is laid bare for all to see. From 1953, Anthony Mann's The Naked Spur, where a group of bounty hunters led by James Stewart's maniacal Howard Kemp slaughter Blackfoot tribesmen in their pursuit of Robert Ryan's outlaw, Ben Vandergoat. A year earlier, Fred Cinnamon's High Noon had depicted the breakdown of democracy when a community cravenly refused to stand behind the lawmen who had been sworn to protect them. And finally, two westerns that undoubtedly had a big influence on Eastwood when he came to direct Unforgiven. From 1950, Andre de the gunfighter, where Gregory Peck's Jimmy Ringo tries to live down his murderous past. And then from 1942, in a film deeply revered by Eastwood, Willie Mae Wellman's The Oxbow Incident, which illustrated how mob rule meted out justice. Major Tetley, you mustn't let this be a lynching. It's a case of what I choose, Davies. Promise me you'll bring him in for a fair trial. I promise I'll abide by the majority will. Tetley, you know what's legal in this case as well as I do. All we ask is a posse to act under a properly constituted officer of the law. That's where I come in. Risley made me a deputy. In that case, Mr. Mapes, suppose you deputize the rest of us. Well, that's not legal. No deputy has the right to deputize. How about it, boys? Search me, Butch. Go ahead and pray. Mapes, you're violating the law. Raise your right hands. Unforgiven begins in a chilling fashion that sets the tone for what will follow. We are upstairs in a saloon, which really means a bordello, which really means men are paying women for sex. The pride of one cowboy is wounded when Delilah, played by Anna Levine, giggles at the size of his penis. He summarily reaches for his dagger and carves open her face. Sheriff Bill Daggett, played by Gene Hackman, is called for, but instead of punishing Delilah's attackers, he orders they return in the spring with six horses to compensate the saloon owner whom Daggett believes has been most aggrieved. Be they westerns or not, all too often in cinema, if a woman is assaulted, the story swiftly shifts its attention to the men seeking vengeance. It is they who feel her pain much more deeply. But while People's Script does devote much more time to the gunmen, it never loses sight of the brutalised women. With Francis Fisher's Strawberry Alice as their leader, considerable time is devoted to their anger and calls for justice. But because the law ignores those calls, over a dozen people will be murdered. For what they've done, skinny, get some ponies and that's it? That ain't fair, little Bill. That ain't fair. A more obvious way Unforgiven undercuts the genre's mythology is by having one of its characters literally rewriting it. W.W. Beauchamp, played by Saul Rubinek, is a third-rate hack hired to write the memoirs of veteran gunslinger English Bob. Played by Richard Harris, English Bob is almost as notorious a killer as Eastwood's Bill Money. But unlike Money, he does not want to live down his past. Instead, he wishes to inflate it, and so Beauchamp dutifully titles the biography The Duke of Death. With almost everything in it a complete fabrication, it falls to Daggett to deflate Bob's legend, renaming him the Duck of Death. Crucially, when Beauchamp realises that Daggett is the more powerful man, he quickly shifts his allegiances, only to do so again after the final shootout when he attempts to follow Bill Money. 
In other words, mythology follows history's victors. You killed five men, single-handed. Yeah. So if Unforgiven offers such a relentlessly bleak view of both America's past and its continued addiction to guns, how do we explain its commercial success? Remember, having carved its heroes in its own image, every culture then vaults them into the realm of infallible purity. So although money, in his own words, killed most everything that walks or crawls, he is played by Clint Eastwood, and the presence of a star ameliorates almost all sins. It is one of cinema's great unavoidable phenomena. But beyond that, Eastwood's direction gives the film an undeniable beauty. The score's main theme, which Eastwood himself composed, and then Lenny Niehaus orchestrated with great variation, is intended to represent Bunny's late wife, Claudia. The film opens with a view of him silhouetted against the sunset, digging her grave, and that lays down the film's overriding melancholic tone. Not content with sunsets and pretty landscapes, Jack N. Green's cinematography recognises that the real landscape lies in the character's emotional turmoil. On crucial occasions, Green exploits the expanse of the widescreen format, using a diopter lens to place characters at pronouncedly different distances from the camera, but with both of them in focus. For me, that visualises the film's theme, that everyone comes under the same judgement. But the thing I really like about Unforgiven is its pacing. Scenes are given a lot of space to breathe. Quite often their running time will equal the running time of an entire sequence in another film. Instead of two minutes, you get five or six. And within that stretch, the conflict will turn over and end up 180 degrees from its original direction. There's the key. All you gotta do is shoot me. And you and Bob can just ride on out of here free as birds. And because of the pacing, the transitions are very smooth. Take for example the moment where money morphs from a man once converted by his late wife back into his drunken vicious ways. It occurs when he and the Schofield kid, played by James Woolvet, are waiting under a tree on the outskirts of town for one of the women from the bordello to ride out and give them their reward money. As the two men ruminate over what just happened, editor Joel Cox cuts rhythmically to the view of little Sue, played by Tara Frederick, as she approaches across the hills. Each cut to little Sue marks a crucial transition in the conversation, until eventually she arrives not only with the bounty, but also the news that Ned Logan, played by Morgan Freeman, has been killed. Who killed him? Little Bill. The Bar T-Boys caught him, and little Bill, he, he beat him up. He was making him answer questions and beating him up, and then Ned just died. Instead of going in for a close-up on Money's face to chart his reaction, Eastwood keeps it on a wide shot, but crucially opts for slow motion. Money simply lifts the bottle of whiskey to his mouth, and for the first time in over a decade, the devil's water passes his lips. From then on, he's back on the road to hell, and he's bringing it with him into the saloon. And for me, that is why Eastwood named it Unforgiven. Money knows that Ned is dead for a reason, and that is not only because Daggett whipped him to death. 
Ned's death can be traced to Money asking him to come along. And so, instead of atoning for that, Money descends back into his killing ways. All will be punished. All will be unforgiven. And that is the tragedy. Not in America's past, but in the presence of violence. It's culture of the gun. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. At the 65th Academy Awards in March 1993, Unforgiven became just the third Western to win the Oscar for Best Picture. And although on the night, People's Screenplay lost out to Neil Jordan for The Crying Game, the WGA have since voted Unforgiven as amongst the 100 greatest screenplays in American film history, while the film itself is now included in the Library of Congress for its cultural, historical and aesthetic significance. <laughs>